Hi, welcome to Ghostman Radio Station. Tonight I'm talking to Laurie Green. Who's Laurie Green? Well, for a daytime job, well, I think we can call it a daytime job. Laurie Green is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Stockton University, New Jersey, which she has taught for, since 1986. She is also founder and chair of the LGBTQ Youth Space Safe Space Initiative at Stockton University, an advocate of local local LGBTQ community contact. Connect, sorry. And she's written a, a, a lovely little book called, oh, let, let me get this right, Drag Queens and Beauty Queens Contesting Femininity in the World's Playground. Now, I don't know no, nothing about this world. I don't know much about Miss America. I don't know nothing about nothing. But um, like to tell me a little bit why she, as associate professor, became interested in the world of drag queens. I know it, I know it's a strange question, but someone's going to ask it. All right. Well, yeah, I'd love to tell this story, actually. Um, so I live in Atlantic City, and if you don't know this, in across the pond there. Atlantic City is the home to the iconic Miss America pageant. It started here in 1929, and it's an organization that's always been run by volunteers in the city, so it's very much a product of the people and the culture in the city. And, um, you know, it spawned every other pageant in the world. Every other beauty pageant is based on Miss America. But what most people don't know is we also have a drag pageant, which is its counterpart. It's sort of an homage to Miss America that began in the early 1990s in response to the AIDS epidemic. And the pageant has sort of symbiotic relationship with Miss America. And I thought that that was really interesting. Um, and I wanted to explore it, and I soon found that it was even more interesting than I thought because it really showed a lot about the culture and history of Atlantic City, and in particular the impact that the gay community has had on the institutions in Atlantic City. So that's how I got interested, um, and I, you know, it, it ended up again being much more interesting than I thought. Well, it's strange because. I mean, in, in England, I don't know if the law was strange, but it's different. But the law was that it was a guilty by law. You were sent to prison for being gay at one, one, once upon a time. It, it's not a very good thing that we can boast about, but it was the truth. You can't hide the truth. I mean, I'm glad that doesn't happen so much more. I mean, obviously, there's still the hatred as such, but I've just not, I would think that's just still easy. You, I judge people for who they are. I don't care what who you are. If you know, I've I've had stuff thrown at me in the past, and I just think it's not worth it. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Atlantic City, and when I tell people I'm from Atlantic City, the first thing they usually go is they get this very disturbed face and go, "Oh, what's that like?" You know, <laughs> as if we're, but it's great. I just absolutely love this city. The city has an amazing history. And one of its bits of history, because we did that same thing here in the United States, right? It was illegal to, they had, we had anti-sodomy laws. Um, the bars were always, um, you know, upturned by the police. People were arrested. That's what Stonewall was about. 
1969, but in 1968 in this city, there was a gay bar called Ray's, and it was the first bar that sued the Alcohol and Tobacco Board for closing gay bars for no reason, and it won, and it actually set the stage for Stonewall to happen in New York City, the more famous Stonewall couldn't have happened without what happened here in Atlantic City at Rays. So this, this city has a very rich and interesting history. It's always been a place where there's been sex tourism, in particular gay sex tourism, um, because people this is a tourist town and people came here for everything, and they still do. Um, whether it was bootleg whiskey during Prohibition or, or, again, the sex trade, which still happens today. And so, again, this is a rich city with a rich history, and... Um, the gay community is a big part of that history. I'm a big fan of the uh, TV series Doom Patrol. Have you heard of it? There's a lot of the Doom Doom Patrol that's on telly. No, I'm not. I haven't heard of it. Oh, well, anyway, there's a storyline where one of the characters, exactly as you said, was from the the time when the laws were against gay people, and he didn't like to be. He was like married, but he was gay. And there's another character. Later on, it likes dressing up as a drag queen and all that. And I just thought it's interesting how they portray these stories about all the, you know, it didn't sort of poo-poo it. It sort of like went into the nasty side as well as the good side. You know what I mean? Anyway, we'll get back to your book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, people had all different ways of passing, more so in the past when it was completely unacceptable, even though people knew, right, that you were in like a marriage of convenience, we used to call that, right? Um, but, you know, and people still do it today. It's not as common because it's more acceptable, thankfully. But, yeah, those kind of things happen here as well. Well, anyway, let's, well, I'm going to ask you a set, set of questions. I hope you're ready for them because I'll work around it a little bit because um, well, um, the first one is, what are camp sensibilities and a drug, a drag performance and gay culture. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, camp, you probably have heard of the word camp or something's campy, and people use it a lot. And it's there's a sense that we know what that is, but we can't define it. And I had the same issue because camp is a highly contested or argued about concept. But the easiest way to think about camp is that camp is a kind of humor that comes out of the incongruities or the inconsistencies that are seen and the absurdities as well that we see in the idea of the ideal nuclear family, you know, sort of the, the housewife who doesn't work and is happy and she's, you know, in the kitchen looking great with her apron on and there's sort of the 50s housewife and the providing father and the perfect children and knowing that this is wrong, but also it comes out of the suffering that gay people feel because of discrimination walking around in the world, the things that they have to do to pretend they're not gay, like you were talking about. And so that, that, they, that's turned, the way of dealing with that pain is to turn it into humor. And so we see this in lots of kind of comedy, but camp is a particular sensibility that plays on the absurdity of the experience of being gay. And so in this sense, camp is a decidedly gay kind of humor. Whether it's used by gay people or not, it is a gay kind of humor. And we can see this in the sort of over-the-top presentations that, let's say, drag queens do. 
that we might be familiar with that we call campy queens, right? This giant, like, 10-foot hair, eyelashes that are a foot long, um, you know, big fat bodies and bikinis or too revealing clothing. Those kinds of things are campy because they make fun of ideal femininity in this case or ideal masculinity. Uh, and then um, the next question yeah. is, the book explores personalities of the pageants. Now, why do you think you, why do, can you give us a flavour of what people would expect? If I, I, if I, as a heterosexual man, just say for argument's sake, and I, I don't like these expressions, but we have to use them because that's, that's why most people don't understand it. But as I, I say, I went to it to a curiosity just to watch it as a pageant. No, no other reason not to take the Mickey or whatever, just as a normal everyday pageant that you would go to. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with Miss America, but it's just like every other beauty pageant that's been created since then. So the Miss America pageant is um, has four different categories traditionally. Right? It has talent and swimsuit and evening gown, and then there's an interview section where the Miss America contestants have to answer difficult questions and not insult anybody because that's what women do, right? We can have opinions, but we want to make sure we, we don't have them too strongly or we say them the right way. So it's a very uh, demure event in a sense, and the, the women that compete in it, the young women, are very much the same. They're the same size, they're the same shape. They might be different color or different hair, but they, other than that, they all look the same. And up until recently, it was very much a white sort of blonde uh, with a few brunettes sort of pageant. So, but the Miss America pageant, the drag counterpart is very different. Um, the drag pageant um, is outrageous. It is off color. It has all different kinds of people with all different kinds of body bodies who celebrate their particular differences. So for example, a queen who is black um, in the Miss America pageant We'll probably do a talent and, and play off of a persona that is sort of like a, an example of a hyper-black female woman. They might do a song from Tina Turner or Whitney Houston. So they're, they're very much engaged in their particularities of their identity, whereas, for example, Vanessa Williams, um, the first black Miss America, Miss America to win, she sang a show tune, Anything Goes, to win the pageant rather than something that identified her as in her uh, identity as a black person. So what they tend to say in Miss America is, you know, we're just really all the same. You know, it, everybody, you know, loves everybody else. Whereas in Miss America, they very much more so celebrate their differences and aren't afraid to express those or things that are inconsistent with what how women should act, like being overtly, overtly sexual or uh, wearing the wrong clothes or saying something insulting. Um, so in this way, the pageants are the same in their structure and in the idea of pageantry, but they're very different in how the ideas of femininity are expressed. Now, I'm going to uh, rephrase this question because I think it's more important. Now, what would you describe... Now, they, when you see a film that, about drag artists... As you say, there's a certain style, a certain performance. Like some will sing, some will sort of mime to the song. You know, there's nothing wrong with that because hey, even the best do that. And and language. I mean, some are quite fruity 
as the word we would say for the word fruity just for okay because we we're on because we, i'm going to put it on youtube so i've got to be careful what word we use but we use the word fruity language but you know that before you go in there you know you're gonna you'll if you sit down in a club and you're and they got you they know you're a newcomer they're gonna they're gonna go bing Um, is why sort of what the kind the, the traditions for behavior when you're at a drag show is that what you're asking? Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. and why they do that? Yeah. So think about it. Normally in society, gay men are let's not say harassed, but certainly at a disadvantage compared to straight men. They may have harassment from them. They may get have gotten beaten up. They may be discriminated against. But when you walk into their venue, the tables are turned, right? So it's very common, for example, for drag queens to, if there are straight men in the audience, to go up to them and harass them, in a sense, right? Turn the tables, turn the power tables on them. Sit on their lap, like embarrass them, right? Um, we call it throwing shade, so making fun of them, um, challenging them, because now that's their house. You know, so they get to experience that turning of the power difference that they usually experience in society. Normally, it's girls, you know, the girlfriend that brings the boyfriend to a drag show if they're straight. And, you know, this is what drag queens are usually looking for if they're going to be making fun of somebody or, you know, chiding somebody who's in the audience. Um, I wanted to make one distinction because I find, like, when I do interviews that people get these things so drag queens are performers. Um, they're usually men, although they don't have to be. They're usually gay men, although they don't have to be, who dress up to represent a, an, a, an exaggerated expression at some level of femininity so that they can critique the narrow roles they're supposed to play that they can't meet in society of masculinity. So in a sense, drag is a critique of masculinity and it's a performance. It's always a performance. That's what drag is. It's theater. Um, trans women are females. These are people who might have been born as men biologically, but their gender identity is female. That's very different being a drag queen, although there are trans women who do drag and they get dressed up in an exaggerated way and they perform. It's not the same as their female identity. Um, and then we have cross-dressers. Cross-dressers are generally straight men. Um, and these straight men have a, uh, a fetish where they enjoy dressing in women's clothing, either in private or in public. So these are different things, and I, I like to point that out because sometimes people get confused and don't understand that men dressing in women's clothing, for example, doesn't have to be drag, and it's not the same animal. And also that drag is traditionally sort of like the front lines of um, homosexual culture. Like they are the people who are most visible. They're sort of unabashedly gay. Like they go out there dressed up and go, I'm gay. That's why I'm dressed like this. 
So in a sense, they are uh, the loudest representatives, and they have been very politically engaged throughout the history, starting in the 1940s and 50s, actually, when drag started uh, becoming a form of popular entertainment here in the United States, and I assume in Europe as well. I know when, because um, I, I used to work in mental health, and somebody we knew wanted to become trans, and he had to go two years living as a woman before he, they would even do any operations or accept that he, they were women. I've, I admire anybody going through that journey because I can, I can't imagine how hard it is. I, I can't. I, as I, I just can't imagine it. But I can imagine. You get a lot of abuse. A lot of people who knew you suddenly go, no, I don't want to know you. That's it. I don't want to know you no more. Even though you've known them for years and years and years, and they probably knew deep down that this was happening anyway, you know, but they just couldn't take the final push, if I can put that politely. <laughs> but what, 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 what's your opinion, Laurie? Do you think that's correct, or am I going the wrong direction? Imagine, I can imagine because there's stress. Yeah. stress. Yeah, there's trying. a struggle there, you know, um, and so a lot of them try to mitigate that by by making that transition. Mm. And next one, I'm going to ask you. I, I will. I, mean, I don't understand the expression, but so I hope you can help me. Tell us about querying, querying, Q U E E R I N G, or America pageant. Did anyone? Did anyone work? On both. Now, I don't understand the word querying. This is, is, I'm sorry, this is maybe one of the most interesting things that I discovered in researching and writing this book, is the incredible influence that gay culture has had on the Miss America pageant, and not just the other way around. So we we would seem to say, oh, the Miss America pageant, the drag pageant, is basically a comment on the original Miss America pageant, which it is, but the Miss America pageant is very much influenced by gay culture, everything about it. So the first thing, for example, 
is in Atlantic City, there's a neighborhood, a section of the city called New York Avenue. It's just four square blocks, but it used to be the most concentrated neighborhood in the entire country. It was very famous. Um, it had 15 to 16 bars and clubs on this very small area right on the boardwalk. It had rooming houses. It had pools. It had restaurants. Um, and it was always packed 24-7. And this is where the Mr. America pageant originated in a bar called Studio 6 which was um, on, in this section, in this neighborhood. And the, everybody, in, we looked at the Miss America pageant now, even though the, the contestants, the young women who compete, change every year, the people who staff the pageant, the choreographers, the hairdressers, the costumers, the production people, almost all of those people were gay. So when they came to town every year for a month in September, in, in August and September, um, they would hang out in the neighborhood every night. So they knew everybody, the same people would come back every year. Um, and these are people who are very much influencing the pageant when it ran um, because they were the people you know, who were doing all these things behind the scenes. But also there are more direct influences that people don't know about. So for example, one of the highlights of the Miss America pageant is something called the Miss America Parade. It's now called the Show Us Your Shoes Parade. Originally, um, the girls would go down the boardwalk in open convertibles, sitting in the back seat in their evening house with their white gloves up to their elbows, and they would wave this little Miss America wave, which is basically turning your hand right and left, and they would parade down the boardwalk very slowly in these cars. It was very demure, and people would stand on the side of the boardwalk and cheer for them, their favorite contestants. Well, on the corner of New York Avenue and the boardwalk, there were two big rooming houses, and they were all occupied by gay men and by drag queens. And they would go out on the balconies during this parade, and they could see down into their cars that they weren't wearing nice shoes because you couldn't see their feet. And they would scream out of the balconies, show us your shoes to try to taunt them. So they were, what we say in gay culture, they were reading them. They were, you know, making them prove that they were worthy competitors like they would um, you know, in camp style. And the girls were instructed, you're going to go down New York Avenue. They're going to try to embarrass you. Just ignore them. Don't talk to them. Don't respond. And they didn't for a while. And then one year, one of the contestants took her sock on her foot and put her foot up in the air, and everybody cheered. I mean, people had signs, they had T-shirts, they had watches. We had all this paraphernalia that said, show us your shoes. Um, people would scream through megaphones. And everyone started cheering, and ever since then, the pageant gave in. They were like, oh, okay, if we can't beat them, we'll join them. And, but what they did was they copy-wrote the name, show us your shoes, so nobody else could use it and renamed the parade the Show Us Your Shoes Parade. And what the contestants do is they dress up in campy outfits and they decorate their shoes like in, you know, so that they're not functional, so that they're a, a fun, they say, a whimsical representation of their state. You know, so they, they're all dressed up. I mean, there's one on the cover of the book, actually. You can see her foot there um, up in the air. And they called it the Show Us Your Shoes Parade. But nobody recognizes that this is because the drag queens were yelling this out of the balcony. Likewise, when Miss America became sort of de rigueur, 
like people were bored of it. Like, oh my God, this has to stop. This is misogynistic. Um, you know, this is ridiculous. Women don't act like this anymore. Here in Atlantic City, people still love this pageant. But more importantly, gay people love this pageant because they think it's campy. They see the contestants as performers and none of it being real, just like them, even though the contestants of beauty pageants may not see themselves that way. So um, Miss America, trying to reform its image recently, eliminated the swimsuit competition and the evening gown, which women said was objectifying. They also took away the runway and the theme music and all the stuff that was sort of pageantry and just made it a scholarship competition. And now everybody hates it because it's not any fun anymore. So they've sort of queered the pageant and then it got de-queered, as I like to say. They tried to clean it up and take all that out of it, but now the pageant um, pretty much has disappeared and is not in Atlantic City anymore. I think, don't take this the wrong way, I think sometimes when people see that there's uh, gender toilets and things like that, they think, oh, here we go, this is giving in. I think, well, no, it's not giving in. It's If you, if somebody, if people are part of society, you ha- I mean, if I'm, I'm disabled, so therefore I'm allowed a disabled toilet. So why, well, that doesn't make me any more special than them. But you know what I mean? That's, I don't get that part of it i do not get it at all and as i say i know for a fact it's a uh, i think it's a medical fact i'm not too sure about this but they, they, they say that most boys before they're 13 do have homosexual thoughts as such i don't know how true that is i don't know somebody might mention no this mark this is a load of beep beep beep, beep. but hey I'm, i mean i don't see nothing wrong with how people think or what they do because we all act in a different way, and we've always—I mean, I—I didn't—I was very shy with girls when I was young, as a young lad, and because I was shy, people automatically feel I was gay, and I just—I just couldn't get the connection. You know, I think one of the things that that makes us do studies and make statements like and try to count like how many like oh like you just said the statistic like let's say one out of five boys has a homosexual experience, like, you know, before they're 15. I think all of this comes from, the, in my opinion, the misconception that our sexuality is somehow on a binary, you know, that we're either totally heterosexual and never had a thought otherwise, and or totally gay and never had a thought otherwise, and that's just untrue. You know, most people are somewhere in between that, you know, and, but the idea that if you're heterosexual and if you think about, you look at some guy and go, God, he's attractive, it, all of a sudden your brain's going to go, oh my God, maybe I'm gay, instead of just like, maybe that guy's just attractive to me. Um, I, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. This all comes from that misconception that we're afraid we're gay, we have to be one thing or the other. Um, when, you know, well, queer theory would say we're all queer. You know, we're all somewhere in between there. We just make these categories and we try to stick people in those boxes. I'll give, you a, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm, I like bodybuilding yeah. and I like wrestling. I've, I'm a great fan of wrestling. Now, what's wrestling? Basically, two blokes 
twisting pants wrestling. They're hardly any clothes on, they? That's what basically wrestling. Yeah, touching each other where they shouldn't touch each other. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, and if you thought about it that way, you go, oh, I won't watch it now. But the Romans are very, they're very, they, um, they were both, both didn't care. They, their society was, if you wanted to be a man, you go with a man. You won't go with women, you go with a woman. You know, they just didn't, they, their society as such didn't judge that. And it's weird, isn't it? How societies and changes that happen all the time, it always goes in ebbs and flows, I think. I mean, there are many cultures in the world where, where they engage in what we would consider homosexual activity, and they don't consider it gay. You know, like, um, for example, there's cultures, I won't, I won't mention the names to be boring, but there are cultures in the South Pacific and, and New Guinea, for example, where, as, you know, boys, when they're learning to be men, will go live in a men, the men's hut, teenage boys, with the adult men, where they learn warfare and how men act and they also basically give fellatio to the men, older men and they feel that you know them getting semen inside of their body is what makes them men and and then when there's a period they do that and then they stop they don't consider it gay or homosexual like giving somebody a you know a fellatio i guess i could say that on youtube um, yeah yeah, yeah well most people don't know what it means <laughs> yeah it's a, diff it's a different definition of that same activity you know, likewise, you know, I, in Europe, for example, and I spent a lot of time there, um, you know, there are many countries, Italy, for example, where men walk down the street holding hands. And they're not gay, it's just what men do. You know, or arm in arm. And in the United States, men would never do that, straight men. Or cross their legs, one knee over the other, like they do in Britain, right? Men would, men would think you were gay if you did that here. So... We, we all have our different ways of, def of, of uh, protecting heterosexuality as the, you know, sort of the norm. And one way we protect heterosexuality as the norm in Western culture is that we identify different kinds of behaviors or signals that make you gay, and we try to stay away from those in whatever culture we're in because we don't want to lose power, you know, by being labeled as gay if that's the case. And so those things are, you know, all defined by the culture that we live in. Um, well, I think I'm going to ask this question. I, I know it's question 11 on the, the list he, he sent me, but I think this one, I think this one puts a debate out there. And I think that this, I, I think you'll agree here. Talk about the conflicts you found between the gay community and the drag community. Because people just think, oh, they must get on. It's the same jolly old thing. And you think, no, it's like all things in life, there's going to be a conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's so interesting. Um, because on the one hand, drag queens are revered as a symbol in the gay community. Um, and on the other hand, they're not necessarily, um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, revered individually between, in an interpersonal for example, because drag queens present femininity in their public persona when they're performing, they may have trouble getting dates with other men because men want to date men if they're gay. You know, I mean, we don't think about, I mean, this literally, it literally happens in the, in the dating scene. 
um, for, for drag queens also. There are more conservative gay men whose way of fitting in to society is to not express themselves as gay. So they may not have a gay affectation in their voice, in their mannerisms, in their presentation. They may not talk about it, you know, at work. They may, everyone may know, but they may present like heterosexual people because, you know, a lot of times heterosexual people say, it's not that I don't like gay people. Do they have, but do they have to act like that? You know? Yeah, um, I thought, so that's a strange thing, isn't critiquing, it? Critiquing that. Yeah. But these same men, they may despise drag queens because what they're presenting is something that embarrasses them about gay culture, that way of acting. They may see drag queens as minstrelizing homosexuality. And to them, that, they, that may make them not like drag at all. Um, we have had conservative political groups here in the United States of gay, gay groups of gay men who have spoken out against, you know, that this is not who we are. You know, everybody, you know, we, these people are damaging our reputation, you know. So there's some of that also. And, and frankly, gay women um, and also, you know, gay women may find um, drag to be exclusive to them. It's uh, drag kings do not have the same representation or popularity, and they may feel that they are misogynistic and, you know, that they're making fun of women rather than making fun of masculinity, which is how most drag queens that I have talked to see it. So, um, you know, there's there's always this. When we have a sort of um, a ritual persona in any culture, there's and there's, there's always a little bit of danger around that ritual presentation, and there's also always a bit of wherever someone has power potentially, like a drag queen might, they may also be feared or despised at one level by certain segments of the community. And I, I think it's also important that people, I know we talk about COVID-19 at the moment, we got a vaccine, the help, blah, blah, blah. But we've had AIDS since a long, very long time. And as far as I know, I may be wrong, I don't think there's no vaccine for AIDS. I know there's lots of drugs that can help um, help you manage AIDS as such. It's not, uh, you know, you don't get it by suddenly shaking someone's hand or, you know, like the, 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 the good old days when the we had the big AIDS adverts over in the UK. We had like a grave stone and it was like AIDS. And I'm like, whoa, it was like, wow. And nobody would go nowhere near gay people or just, oh, they was promiscuous, is that the word? Uh, yeah. They was having sex every five minutes, and I thought, no, that's not the truth. But anyway, um, do you think now uh, it's harder or easier if you're a gay person to come out? Oh, that's a, I mean, that's a difficult question. Um, I think, I, I'm going to step back a minute and just say that in the 1970s, right, when we had in the United States and everywhere around the world, Western world, at least, when we had some of the liberation movements, black liberation, um, feminism, gay liberation, was probably the high point for tolerance um, of the gay community. And when AIDS and HIV came in the late 19, in the 1980s and 90s, it basically re-stigmatized the gay community. It, it took a step back in terms of acceptance because HIV and AIDS became associated with being gay, 
that's how you got it, you were gay, um, instead of really how you got it, because people didn't know. So um, now that we have drugs that manage HIV infection, and we have drugs like PrEP, um, which can prevent people from getting HIV if they're engaging in high-risk behaviors, I think some of that stigma is leaving, but it's still very much stigmatized to be HIV positive or have AIDS. So the gay community is still coming out of the negative uh, ramifications of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, and yeah, it's interesting you mentioned COVID and then mentioned HIV because when COVID first started, I really had sort of this foreboding like um, deja vu. You know, I, I remember thinking to myself, I've already watched a bunch of my friends die and I'm not doing that again. And, you know, the, the fear of having to go through that again, like go to more funerals than you do go out to a club every week. Um, you know, that's a very traumatic time for uh, gay people who are my age, um, you know, 60s. 50s and 60s and their 50s and 60s to have to, to have to remember that and watch that. And in fact, in Atlantic City, um, the gay community here lost more people uh, per capita, gay people in our population than any other um, place in New Jersey and, and one of the top 10 in the country. So we had a very dramatic loss here. It's a very concentrated, small community. People from New York, really Washington, D.C. all came here to, you know, to party. And so... It was a very dramatic event, and then, in fact, it, it was the birth of Mist America because the Mist America pageant started to raise money for an organization called South Jersey Against AIDS, which is now the South Jersey AIDS Alliance, which is one of the oldest AIDS activism organizations in the world, and it wanted to get food, medical attention, help bury, because the funeral homes weren't accepting people. Um, people that were dying in the city. So what Atlantic City did is they wanted to raise money and they went to what they knew, drag and pageantry. These are things that our city knows. We're an entertainment capital. We're a tourism destination. And, and this was their resolution to how they were going to combat, combat this horrible epidemic um, that they were all just finding out. You know, little information was being found out about it as, as people were just dying right and left here in the city and elsewhere. And I, I like the fact that you um, back up what you say, you know, the, the LGBTQ community. It's a bit of a mouthful, that is. I, th I think they have to shorten that abbreviation. It's a very long abbreviation. Oh, my God, it gets longer and longer. And, yeah, and, I, I know what it all stands for, but I'm not going to spend all day going, because I'm, I'm a great believer, because I used to work in mental health, as I said, and a lot of people mental health get labels all their life. I've had a label in my life. You know, I had one for years on my doctor's records. Doctor's records, remember this? Suicidal. That was on my doctor's records on the top where anybody could read it. Yeah, you know, I'm not that person now, but you know, I can understand what it's like to live with a stigma like that as such. Not fully, but I can understand that. Yeah, you know, you know, got a label, and I'm thinking, well, you're not the label, you're the person. I mean, if. There's always a, a person you meet and go, oh, bloody hell, I don't like them. And it's not because of what, who they are. You just don't like them as a person. Yeah, well, like, you know, it's why a lot of people like to use the label queer 
because it basically means not straight uh, to people that that like the label, and it it avoids the more particulars of which letter of the alphabet you are, and and because a lot of people don't feel like just one of the letters of the alphabet, although some do. Um, identify that way, but a lot of people like to say the queer, they're queer, or they're part of the queer community, to sort of get around the more particular label um, that, you know, in the queer community, trying to be inclusive is why they're adding letters, because they don't want to leave people out that have traditionally been marginalized, even within the queer community, right? There's people that have been marginalized. Because the queer community is part of our larger culture, so we're going to have the same sorts of prejudices, right, and and misconceptions and power asymmetry that we have in the rest of culture. And so that's why the letters are being added, and that's why some people like the term queer. Um, some don't. Some think it's pejorative, right? But a lot of people do like it because it's just this general term that means I'm not straight. Now, do you think, like, this is a similarity to Black Lives Matter, you're going to see where I'm going now. They are saying that certain words shouldn't be in books. I can understand that. I've got enough problem with that, because some of them are very, very offensive. I will say that. But there are people that, uh, even Blighton, for example, wrote Gay Day, or Gay, or lots of things. And there's lots of homosexual jokes in programs and tv we can go back to the 60s and the 70s and even the 80s not so much in the 90s i think there was a bit but not so much now do you think it's wrong that we should say no we've got to cut that out we shouldn't have that it should be taken out of the box it should be shaken out of the show or do you think no I'll just show it because that was what we thought then it doesn't matter now I just find it odd. Who uses it makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, I understand that now. I didn't before. I didn't before because I've talked to more people, more and more people. I understand now. I didn't before. I couldn't understand. Well, where can you use that N word? But if I use the N word, it would be offensive. I'm not going to say the word. But, and and I thought, yeah. Yeah, it comes back to this camp sensibility. You know, I'm going to take what everybody says about me. The things they use to hurt me, and I'm going to use it in a way that gives me power. Yeah, I understand that now. I'm going to take the hurt out of that word. I'm going to call myself it before you call me it. And it comes out of, some of it comes out of that kind of reasoning. And so we tend to use those words as terms of affection with one another. So, 
black people or African Americans might use the N word as a term of affection between each other. But you only call someone you really have affection for, someone who's really your friend, that word. You don't just call some guy on the street that word, even if he's black, okay? And no, 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 no. It's the same thing in gay culture. You know, you can call somebody a faggot or a queer or a dyke if they're as a term of affection, if you have that kind of relationship with them. But you don't call anybody that, you know? So, and, and you know, we, all of us have this, even within, we might have a similar kind of thing within our families or, you know, with our good friends that we joke with. I'll, I'll so, tell you a secret now. My wife doesn't understand people gay or are um, cross-dressing or drag queens. She cannot understand it. She, in her, she's grown up in a little village in the middle of nowhere, and it's just not nothing known about it really. And she calls, she says, "All those, what's he say? All those, uh, those strange people, or something like that." I, and I always say to them, "Look, da, 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 da. and she because I grew up in a multicultural place where I come from, and I was more used to it." Yeah, even sometimes it shocked me a little bit. I've got to admit that. But, hey, it, it, it's good to be shocked. I used to go out to shock people. So I, I can't expect other people to go and do it. I mean, you can't, you can't, you know, it's natural that something that is, that we, we've never experienced or we don't understand is going to seem strange to us, right? And having said that, just being exposed to it doesn't change our minds about it. Instead, in order to have empathy for something, we have to have an experience with it that helps us understand it. It's not always the kind of thing you can explain to somebody with words, right? It's something, for example, if I, I can, someone can explain to me what it's like to be disabled, but I might not understand that unless I have an experience that allows me to feel what it's like. You know, so I say the same thing about being gay, unless you have an experience that allows you to feel what it's like to be stigmatized or to be judged or to be treated as an outcast, you might never understand that. You might keep going, I get what you're telling me, but it's, I don't, that's ridiculous, right? It's not just information. We have to experience things in our bodies to change our minds. And so this is why it's so difficult to change people's minds, because we can avoid experiencing things in our bodies if we find them distasteful or we don't care to. Now, Mary, please tell me anything, any information you want to give me, like where people can get your book, because I think it's worth them going out and investigating and find out more. Uh, Absolutely. It's not and I want to say that the book has a lot of really, it's not written like an academic book. It's anthropology is very much about allowing the voices of the people that you're studying to speak. So it's very much the voices of the people that live in this community, and there's a lot of interesting stories and memories in it, and the importance of place is very much highlighted here. But you can get the book at any bookseller, um, any online, any bookstore, and or you could go directly to Rutgers University Press, which is where the book is um, is published. But you know, Amazon. I know it's on the UK Amazon site. So you're there. Got some nice reviews, um, but yeah, you can buy the book anywhere. And I'd love if you read it that you leave some comments 
you know, on Amazon or anywhere else where you bought it. Love the reviews, love the comments. Now, the picture, did you do that picture yourself or was it someone, uh, an archive picture on the on the cover? You've got the, as you mentioned, the, 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 the shoe thing. That's actually a picture that was taken um, by my photographer, um, Paul Dempsey. He's a wonderful photographer, but we were standing there and taking pictures of the pageant. And the drag queen that you see there, um, sort of in between the contestant holding up her shoe, is the famous Morgan Wells, who is a former Miss America original. Uh, but also, she is the owner of Morgan Wells Drag Closet, which is one of the world's most famous costume designers for drag queens. So that's her right there on the boardwalk, doing what she always does every September that the Miss America Show Us Your Shoes parades happen. Well, if it was on YouTube, I should definitely give it a look. I should definitely look it out. I, I mean, when people go, they want something. I know, I want to keep, I want to learn. I don't care. I'm willing to learn. If I find it funny and amusing, you know, I, I, I watch Priscilla Queen, is it Priscilla Queen in the Desert? Queen of the Desert. Yeah, it's a brilliant film. Absolutely brilliant film. I yeah, think it is. very well acted. Yeah. Love the travel movie, but it really is an accessible book, so sometimes when people know I'm an anthropologist and it's published by an academic press, they're afraid to pick it up, but I always write my work so that the people I study can read them and, and you know, get a bit of their history recorded. So, Laurie, Laurie this is the bit we come to the end. Uh, Laurie, uh, I always ask my guests the following question. Laurie, what is your unique sign-off? My unique sign-off? My unique sign-off is going to be show us your shoes. <laughs> like that one. And mine for you, Laurie. Are you ready? <clears throat> Today I talked to Laurie Green, who wrote about drag queens and beauty queens, contesting femininity in the world's full playground. I learned some more about this world that I don't know much about. But there's nothing wrong about that. We have to experience things from how we perceive. We've got to break down barriers, because that's what the walls are for. And as Popeye would once say, I am's what I am's, and it doesn't matter what you care to say about me, because I am going to be me, and I'm not going to be you. So don't judge, be you. And support LGBTQ, I wish it was a bit shorter than that, but hey, that's just me. <laughs> and Lovely. good night.